0: All right. Good job, kids. Thank you for coming up and participating. Uh, Parents, we will especially be praying for you this week as you try to explain to your children how it is that Christ is both God and man uh, in one person forever and ever. Uh, Deep waters there for sure, but important doctrine. I find that the best thing we can do actually is to just teach our children to articulate these things so that they have the language, and then over time we do pray that the Lord will help them in their understanding of these things too. The sermon text for today is Genesis 1 1 through 2 3. And so let us go now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth." And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Let us go now to the New Testament reading for today which comes from Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 3. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3. Here we read the words of John and the word of God which says, So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it also. Brothers and sisters, please do not assume that we have now begun to rush through our study of the book of Genesis. Um, It's true that we will be considering Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 this morning, but we will return to this whole passage to move through it more methodically and also in pieces in the weeks to come. In this sermon, we will consider this passage generally and as a whole. I do believe that it's helpful to do that from time to time. It is helpful to move slowly, but also to consider passages in their entirety. And indeed, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 make up the first unit of the book of Genesis. Today, I want for you to see that although God first created the earth uninhabitable, remember that it was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep or over the surface of the waters uh, this was not god's ultimate design and purpose for the world instead god formed the world to be inhabited isaiah 45:18 says uh, this he did in the days of creation that are recorded for us here in genesis One, God formed the world to be inhabited. So at first, the world was uninhabitable, but God did, in the process of creation, form the world to be inhabited. God's design for the world was that it be not empty, but instead filled with life. God's purpose for the world was that it be a place for man to dwell. God's intention for the world was that it be a place where man would enjoy fellowship with himself, fellowship with God. God's purpose for the world was that it would be filled with those who would worship and serve him always. In the end, God's design for the world that he made Was that it be a place filled with His glory where man would enjoy unbroken, unmitigated, and unending communion with the God who made them. How do we know that this was God's purpose in creating the heavens and the earth? How do we know that God's design for the world was that it would be a place filled with His glory where man would enjoy unbroken, unmitigated, and unending communion with the God who made him? I might ask this question, is this purpose for the world clearly communicated in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? And I think we would have to say that this truth is indeed communicated here, but it is the rest of Scripture that makes this truth abundantly clear. The rest of Scripture makes it clear that this was God's design from the beginning. The world was created by God to be a place where man would rightly relate to God and God to man. Man was designed to worship and serve his creator. Man was to enjoy the glory of his creator forever and ever. Uh, This, of course, was lost at the fall, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But this hope was regained through Christ our Savior, and this hope will be the end of the matter as the book of Revelation makes clear. All who are in Christ will be brought safely into the new heavens and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, have, having been ruined by sin, will pass away. Behold, we read, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as Their God. In the end, God will make all things new. The earth will finally fulfill the purpose for which God designed it. It will be a place filled with the glory of God where man will enjoy this unbroken, unmitigated, and unending communion with the God who made him. How important it is for us, brothers and sisters, to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 in light of the rest of Scripture particularly the New Testament and especially the book of Revelation. I know that it felt kind of strange to go from the end to the beginning. A sermon series on Revelation followed by a sermon series on Genesis. But truth be told, now that we have the book of Revelation, this is the best way to study the book of Genesis in light of all that the book of Revelation has to say, in light of all that the New Testament has to say, in light of all that the Old Testament prophets have to say, for these do shine light back upon the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis to help us understand what God's intention was in creating the heavens and the earth as He did. How do we know His intention? Well, truth is communicated there in Genesis 1 and 2. But the end of the story also helps us, doesn't it? We're able to see where God does eventually bring all things. And he brings all things to his desired and designed end. In the previous sermon, I I made the assertion that the act of creation was itself revelatory. I hope that you're able to grasp the significance of this statement. It means that the way in which God created the heavens and the earth reveals truth. Truth concerning God, truth concerning the creation, his purpose for it, and his interaction with it. I admitted that God could have snapped his fingers and the earth would have been formed as it is now in an instant, but instead he He took time, he went through a process of creating and forming the heavens and the earth, uh, in particular here I should say the earth, um, he went through a process to bring it into its present form. And this process, the act of creation, was itself revelatory. It communicated truth. Indeed, God reveals truth by His Word. This is true. God speaks to us, doesn't He? He has given us His Word by the prophets of old, by Christ Himself, by Christ's apostles. Uh, This Word was at first spoken afterwards. It was written And it is the written word of God which is our authority for truth today. But before the scriptures were written, God did act in human history. He acted in creation. He acted in delivering Israel from Egypt. And he acted by sending his son into the world, this culminating in the act of crucifixion Resurrection and ascension. The acts of God serve, therefore, as the basis for the word of God, first spoken, then written. And I am saying that the acts of God are in and of themselves revelatory. God reveals truth not only by his word, but also by what he does in history. The way in which the Christ lived, died, rose, and ascended revealed truth. The way in which God redeemed Israel from Egypt revealed truth, the way or the process whereby God created the heavens and the earth, revealed truth, truth concerning God, truth concerning the creation itself, His purpose for it, and His interaction with it. You you may have heard it said before that Genesis 1 establishes a worldview for us. Have you heard that before? That Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and all of Scripture for that matter, is, is really a book about worldview. It's a book that helps us to, to, to look at the world around us and to interpret it correctly, to understand its purpose correctly. Uh, this is all true. In fact, it should be said that Genesis chapters 1 through 3 provide us with the foundation for a worldview that is biblical and true. This is why these chapters in particular are so important to us as Christians. And it is also why I think these chapters are always under assault, by the way. Uh, the evil one is always seeking to undermine the truthfulness of these chapters in Holy Scripture. How should we see the world? It's an important question, isn't it? How should we see it? There are times where I wish we were outside uh, when, when I'm preaching. This is one of those times. You know, It would be helpful, I think, just to, to look around and to actually see the sky and to see the clouds in it and to see the mountains and, and to look up and to imagine what is beyond Uh, our atmosphere, you know, though we cannot see the stars in the daytime, you know that they're there and we can look towards the sun and maybe even see the moon. It's our our world. Wouldn't it be helpful uh, to look at it and to put our eyes upon it, but you can imagine it and that's almost as good, I guess. How should we think of this world? How should we think of God? How should we think of creation? How should we think of man and God's purpose for man? Genesis chapters 1 through 3 lay the foundation for us. We will see that God made the world to be inhabited by man. It is the place that God prepared for man so that he might enjoy communion. That is a relationship with God as he worships and serves God according to God's design and purpose. And so how important it was for these truths to be communicated To and even written down for the people of Israel as they were led out of Egypt and towards the land of promise by the hand of Moses. When was the book of Genesis written, friends? It was written long ago by Moses after he led the people of Israel out of bondage to Egypt and before they were taken into the promised land, the land of promise, the land promised to them by God. It was written then and how important it was for them to have this text, uh, this worldview Presented to them the worldview of the Egyptians was all jumbled up and distorted. The Egyptians, remember, worshipped many gods. The distinction between creator and creature had been obliterated by them so that for the Egyptians, the sun, and I am here talking about not the son of God as we refer to him, but the sun itself, that flaming ball that we see up in the sky. For them, the sun was a god. So too was the Nile, etc., etc., And when the one true God delivered Israel from Egypt, how did He do it? He did it in such a way to demonstrate that their gods were not gods at all and that the God of Israel was the true God. Remember that the sun was darkened. Remember that the Nile was turned to blood and so on and so forth. You see that this is a worldview thing here. It it is that God is presenting to His people a true world view and he is saying to them this is how you ought to see the world here is who i am here is you who you are here is what the creation is here is my purpose for it the same thing could be said of the people among whom the Israelites wandered while in the wilderness. They were pagan idolaters who lived according to a false worldview. And the same thing could be said concerning the people who occupied the land of promise that Israel would eventually come to have as her own. They were pagan idolaters who lived according to a false worldview. And so the book of Genesis is here given to the people of Israel by the hand of Moses. It's inscripturated. It's written down so that they might view God and the world in which He has created and themselves aright as they are sojourning out of Egypt through the wilderness and toward that land of promise. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 were given to Israel through Moses along with the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, so that Israel, God's chosen people, might have a true worldview and therefore live accordingly. This same worldview was also given to Adam and Eve in the garden. I want you to think with me about this for a moment. The same worldview was also given to Adam and Eve in the garden. I am not saying that they had it in writing, as Israel did after Moses penned the Pentateuch, but clearly even Adam and Eve knew all about the history that is recorded for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. They knew about this history. It It was revealed to them. It was given to them. What Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 3 reveals to us must have also been revealed to Adam and Eve. Think about this. Adam and Eve were not there to witness the creation of the world in six days. They were created on the sixth day. But they certainly knew about God's work of creation, for even they were called by God to work six days and to rest on the seventh in imitation of the pattern established by God at creation. They were called to follow that pattern themselves. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It was to be a day of rest, even for Adam and Eve. How did they know that? Well, it was revealed to them by the God who made them. This history that we have inscripturated was made known to them. God revealed it to them so that they might live according to this worldview. They understood who God was what the world was all about, what it was for, God's purpose and design for it, who they were, they understood how they were to relate to their God in this place that God had formed for them, this place that was to be inhabited. It set everything in place. Adam and Eve even had this this biblical, this true world view That history, the history of God's creative act was revealed to them by God. It must have been if they were to follow this pattern of six days of work followed by one day of rest and worship. And Adam and Eve were alive to experience much of what is revealed to us in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2.7, we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Um, but the story that follows from there was actually their story. They were alive to experience it. They lived it, and therefore they knew it well. And the same can be said of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve lived that narrative. It was their story and their history. And so Adam and Eve, they themselves possessed a true world view. It's not as if this true world view was given for the very first time to Moses and through Moses to the people of Israel. But even Adam and Eve had it, and they were to live according to it. And this truth that we now have in the written word of God was also passed along to their children, and they were to live according to it. This true world view was preserved by the righteous line that proceeded from Adam and Eve until it was written down by Moses as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what he wrote and without error. I'm not saying that it was always preserved in perfect purity, but I am saying that it was preserved. And so that what Moses wrote when he wrote it, was not brand new information. It's not as if it had been revealed to him for the very first time. But even Adam and Eve had it. They did pass it along to their children. And to the children that came from them, that righteous line indeed did preserve this revelation that originally came from God. And now we... Though we live a very long time after the book of Genesis was first written by Moses and given to Israel some 3,500 years afterwards. And though we live in a world that is very different from the one in which Moses and ancient Israel lived, we also are to receive what is here written as our worldview. We are to live according to it as well. I I have noticed that people do not often think about their worldview. They simply live, and they see the world as they see it, and they assume that their view of the world is is right. They probably also assume that everyone else sees the world just as they see it. And then they go on to live according to their worldview, which they assume is right, without realizing how much their worldview affects every area of their lives. Have you noticed this? Have you thought much about your worldview? Have you thought about where it is that you got it? Have you questioned whether it is true? Have you thought through how much your view of the world actually impacts the way that you live moment by moment? Your worldview affects the way that you live. The truth of the matter is that you spend your time and the way that you spend it according to your worldview. You have time to spend, don't you? It's one of the things that God has given to you. You have this moment and the next one and the next one after that. And you have to spend that time somehow. And your worldview, the way that you view God, the world around you, others, yourself, is going to determine in many ways, affect greatly at least, the way that you spend your time. We can say the same thing concerning your money, the resources that God has given you. You spend your money and the way that you spend it according to your worldview. You invest your energies according to your worldview. You view your view of the world impacts even even your inner life. Even your inner life. Your thoughts, your emotions, even your appetites, these are all affected by the way in which you view the world in which you live, the God who made it the world and yourself. You react even to life's successes and failures, life's joys and sorrows according to your view of the world. And so to have a true and biblical worldview is a great blessing. In fact, I do not see how you can have true faith in Christ without a true biblical worldview. And I know that having a fully formed and mature biblical worldview will go a long way in advancing your sanctification in Christ. I think it would be over, overly simplistic to say that all of your struggles with sin come from having a, a messed up worldview. That might be overly simplistic, but I know that I can say that oftentimes you do struggle in this world inwardly or when it comes to sinful behavior because you have not believed what the scriptures actually say. Concerning God and the world in which we live. The more that we know and truly believe what God has revealed concerning Himself, ourselves, and the world in which we live, the more it will help us in living for God in this world and not for self. It is no wonder that Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, that is, do not be conformed to the way that the world thinks, do not be conformed to the way that the world lives, but be transformed by the renewal. Of your mind. What is the Apostle Paul saying here? That, that a part of our transformation, the way that it comes about is by our minds being renewed. Renewed according to what, brothers and sisters? Renewed according to the Word of God, that we would receive with meekness and with humility God's Word, that we would receive with meekness and humility God's view of the world, that we would have it as our own, and that we would then therefore live accordingly. Sanctification, that is growth in Christ happens, transformation happens when we are renewed in the mind by God's holy word. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and and indeed the whole of scripture was given so that God's people might see the world and the God who made it correctly and then go on to live accordingly. It is here in the opening chapters of Genesis that the truth concerning the world in which we live is established for us. Regrettably, when the text of Genesis 1 and 2 are considered today, the focus of attention often goes to questions concerning the age of the earth, or the length of the days of creation, or to other such things. And I am not saying that these questions are unimportant. They are very important. And neither am I saying that Genesis has nothing to say about these things. Indeed, Genesis has much to say concerning these these matters. But I am saying that Genesis 1 and 2 were given first to Israel and also to us so that we might have a worldview that is true and thus live according to it as children of God. The act of God creating the heavens and and the earth was revelatory. Not only did He get the job done, but he also revealed truth in the process. We have the history of God's creative acts preserved for us in the scriptures, and this history is given not so that we might simply know the facts, nor so that we might answer scientific questions, but so that we might have a proper view of God, of the world that he has made, of ourselves and God's purpose for us. As we uh, consider Genesis 1-3 through 2-3 generally, there, there are a few things that stand out as significant building blocks for a biblical and true worldview. I want to look at five of them very briefly. First, when we consider this passage in its entirety, we are confronted with the fact that when all is considered, there is God and there is His creation. If you want to put everything that exists into two categories, the two categories are these. There is God and there is His creation. All that exists can be divided into these two categories. There is God and everything that is not God is the creation of of God. God is not one with His creation but is distinct from it. Nothing at all in God's creation is to be worshipped, therefore. Never should man bow down before or pray to any created thing but to God alone. And this fundamental fact that there is God and there is His creation should cultivate humility within us for it is this distinction between creator and creature which brings us to the realization that we are not God. We are not God. We are his creatures. We were made by Him and for Him and thus thus are subordinated to Him by virtue of our very existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is God and there is His creation. Everything that is not God is the creation of God. You are His creature and He is your maker. Do you believe this? I know that you believe this. I'm hoping that you can back away from all that is being said here and though it seems so elementary, you're able to see how profound it is and what a tremendous impact this ought to have upon our our lives. That there is the creator of all things and there is his creation. And what are we a part of? What category, brothers and sisters, do we belong in? We are creatures. Boy, this sets us off in the right direction, really. What a fundamental distinction this is, but a helpful one And if you do believe this, that there is God and there is His creation, I hope that you're able to see how this most fundamental of all worldview building block should impact your life on a day-to-day basis. Do you really believe that God is God and that you are His creature? Why then do you wake up in the morning and not give Him honor immediately? Why do you do that? Why do your thoughts not go immediately to Him? Why do you not give Him thanks? How are you able to go about your days living only for yourself. How is it that you're ungrateful, complaining always about your position in life and your circumstances? How how are you prideful? How are you prideful if indeed you believe that there is God and there is His creation and that He is creator, you are creature? Often, the trouble is not that we do not believe these things, but that we do not believe them deeply enough. God is God and we are His creatures. Let us therefore live for His glory always. This is only fitting. This is only right. If indeed this is our view of the world, then this is the right response to it. We're to live for the glory of God always. Secondly, notice that God is sovereign over all His creation. God is sovereign over all His creation. When we say that God is sovereign, we are saying that He is supreme. He is Infinitely elevated above the highest creature. So think of the highest creature. God is infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high. That is one of his names. He is Lord most high. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God always does. As he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. That is from A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. And so do you see that in the beginning there was God, nothing existed besides him to challenge his authority. He did not struggle to bring heaven and earth into existence, but merely spoke and it happened. Did you notice the repetition throughout Genesis 1? And God said, And God said, and God said, and it was accomplished. So God is supreme in creation, and He is now sovereign over His creation. Nothing of all that God created can possibly threaten His authority. Did God bring something into creation that would then threaten His authority? Absolutely not. You have God Most High, Lord of heaven and earth. He is supreme, and He is sovereign over all that He has created. And this is not the God of the pagans. Idolaters imagine that the world came about as the result of a great struggle amongst the gods. Idolaters imagine that the gods are still struggling amongst themselves, and they are also struggling with man, trying to get their way, trying to accomplish their purposes. But it is a battle, of course, between light and darkness, good and evil, you see. That is the pagan view of God. But the God of Scripture was supreme in the beginning and is sovereign still. He is God most high. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46.10. This is our God. And sadly, many today who name the name of Christ do not have the God of their Bible as their God. But they have a paganized and idolatrous version of Him They claim to believe in the God of the Bible, but they have brought Him down low to make Him to be just like one of us, one who struggles to bring about His purposes, one whose will can indeed be thwarted by the creature. Truly, God is sovereign. He was supreme at creation. There was none to challenge him. He effortlessly spoke the world into existence, and he is sovereign over all his creation, even still as he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1 1. Also, do you see that God is good? God is good. Many Bible texts could be called upon to testify to this fact. And also, I think we could point to many things in the world, uh, yes, even in this fallen and sin-sick world, to show that God is good. But His goodness was evident even in the act of creation. Notice the repetition found in Genesis 1. Throughout, we find the remark that when God looked upon what He had made, He saw that it was what? He saw that it was good. Indeed, when God was finished with creation God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the 6th day that is Genesis 1:31 so God is good the world as it came originally from his hand reflected his goodness God's goodness can be seen in the world today though the world be tainted by sin and in the end God will work all things for good for those who love God for those who are called according to his purpose. God is good. This is a fundamental, a major building block of our worldview. Fourthly, do you see that God is relational? God is relational. And I have three things in mind here. One, God is relational within himself. In other words, the one true God who in the beginning created the heavens, the earth, is triune. He is three in one and one in three. The triunity of God is revealed in Genesis one. It was God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, and yet the Spirit of God was said to be hovering over the primordial waters. And notice also that God created by His Word. Remember, and God said, and God said, and God said. He created through the agency of His Word. This is the refrain that runs throughout the passage. But when we come to the pages of the New Testament, it is clear that this Word of God is in fact a person. John 1, one says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. This is a description of, of Christ, the Word of God incarnate. And so we see that this God, the one true God, who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, He is triune, Father, Son, or Word, and Holy Spirit. Notice also the language of Genesis one twenty-six, which points to the plurality within the Godhead. When it came time for the creation of man, God said this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us do it. God here speaks to Himself. And he refers to himself in the plural to reflect the plurality that exists in the Godhead, Father, Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit. And notice that when God does make man, he makes man in his image. He makes man in his image. And he also makes man plural. He makes man male and female. Man, or humanity as we might call it, is male and female man therefore made in god's image reflects the plurality that exists within the godhead we will deal with all of this much more carefully in weeks to come but for now i want you to see it that god is relational even within himself and god is also also relational with his creation with his creation though he is lord most high though he is the creator and we the creation Though He is sovereign and supreme over all, He is also the God who is eminently near to us. He relates to the creation. He relates to the world that He has made. Man made in the image of God was made to relate to God. He was made to exist in covenantal communion with God. He was... This is a part of, of what it means for man to be made in the image of God. Men and women were made in such a way that they correspond to the God who made them. They have the capacity, the ability to relate to this God who brought them into existence at the beginning of time. And notice, fifthly and lastly, that God is to be served and worshipped by man. God is to be served and worshipped by man. Man was blessed by God when he was given Uh, God was man was blessed by God and then also he was given a mandate we see that in verse 28 and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth there's so much to consider here but for now I want you to see that God from the beginning gave man a command and man was therefore to obey that commandment he was to fulfill the mandate that was given to him. He was given dominion, but notice that man's authority was not unlimited. Man from the beginning was to live in subordination to the God who made him. And God was to be worshipped by man. Even in the garden, one day out of seven was set apart as holy unto God. Man was to do all of his work to the glory of the God who made him, but one day in seven was set apart as holy by God so that man would rest and worship even in that garden paradise. And so, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. This pattern is given even to Adam and Eve and the principle that undergirds it all is that Adam and Eve as God's creatures are to live their entire lives in service of the God who made him and as an act of worship before this God. They were to follow the pattern given to them. They were to fulfill the mandate given to them. They were to live forever under God's supreme authority. Dear dear brothers and sisters, I wonder... If you would take time to reflect on these principles that I have presented to you from the text of Genesis 1 1 through 2 3. And I wonder if you would ask yourself a few questions. First of all, do you believe these things? Do you truly believe them? Are you submitting to God's word and saying, yes, indeed, God's word is true and I believe it? I hope that you do. And if so, I would ask you this question. Secondly, If you claim to believe these things, are you living according to these truths? Now, here's where the hard work begins. Okay, I'm asking you to inspect yourself, to ask yourself difficult questions. If these things are true concerning God and concerning myself and His design and purpose for the world, am I living accordingly? Am am I living in a way that makes sense, given given the truthfulness of all that has just been said? Or is my life out of sync Is my life out of step with this true and biblical worldview? I have refrained here for the sake of time from making much specific application for you, but I hope you'll go about the task yourself to say, is my life being lived according to these truths that I claim to be? Is God really Lord of your life? Or are you living for self or for some other thing? Is God really supreme to you? Or is something else supreme Three, I must ask this question, are you believing upon Christ? The trouble here is we have not yet come to Genesis chapter 3 which will describe to us the fall of man. Adam and Eve there in the garden, they actually had the ability to live perfectly according to the worldview that had been revealed to them. They had that ability to go on living in in perfect submission to the God who made them, to go on obeying Him in every command that He gave to them, to go on worshiping Him always. They had that ability, but we have lost it, friends. Man did fall into sin. We were born in sin. We have already violated His commandments over and over again. We have already failed to live according to this worldview. We have come short of the glory of God over and over again. And so it is required of you that you come to God, not on your own, in your own righteousness, but through a mediator. Your sins that have already been committed and will be committed in the future must be covered. They must be taken away. And the only Savior, the only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is Christ Jesus. He is to be your Lord. You are to believe upon Him. And once you believe upon Him, once you die to self and say, I do not have a righteousness of my own, but I must have the righteousness of Christ, then you must go on and order your life according to what has been said here today. Live for the glory of God alone, brothers and sisters. Live as if He is sovereign. Live as if He is supreme. Live as if He is truly your Lord. Worship and serve Him always in Christ Jesus. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us in these things. These are simple principles, simple truths that have been drawn from the text of Genesis 1, which you have given to us. Lord, but they are difficult for us, not because they are difficult to understand, but because of our sin nature. Everything in us wants to be supreme. We want to be our own Lord. We want to decide for ourselves what is true and what is false. Lord, we are prideful, self-centered creatures by nature. We thank you for Christ that has paid for our sins. We also thank you for your word and spirit which does transform our mind and which does renew our hearts. Do it, Lord, we pray, for our good and your glory. Would you change us to the core so that we would die to self daily, that we would surrender to you fully, that we would have you as Lord, that we would worship and serve you always. Lord, you must do this work within us. Change us to the very core, we pray. It's in the name of Christ we say these things and all of God's people say. Amen.